welcome to another inspirational message from London Live Church. You're listening to our Sermon of the Week. Thank you, Mira. It's, it's so nice to be in London Live once again. Um, yeah, I've seen some very new faces, people I haven't seen before, and I've also seen some people I've seen here before. So um, permit me to once again say welcome to London Live. Um, today, um, what we're going to do is I'm just going to read the text and talk about it a little bit. And then we celebrate. Is that okay? We are going to celebrate. So get ready for that. Um, the topic of what I want to talk about today is more than conquerors. More than conquerors. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity. We know you're here. We know your spirit is here. So now we just want to pray that you reach us, speak to us, allow us to be confident one more time that you will never leave or forsake your own. Be with us to this end. In the name of Jesus, I've prayed. Amen. Amen. So we're going to read that text together, and we're going to make it start. The text is... Romans chapter 8, Romans chapter 8, I'm going to be reading from verse 35 to 39, Romans chapter 8, 35 to 39, okay, we can make a start, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I have a little confession to make. I grew up in a little village in, in, in Nigeria. And growing up, I was inundated with stories. Every value that had to be taught, or every idea that the parents, aunties, uncles, anyone wanted me to know about, they had to do it through stories. So we had all these weird stories about animals, about tortoises, about name it. All the animals have a story. So everything was just about stories. And so I, I grew up loving stories, just loving stories. And I got to church. The same thing happened in church. They started with all these stories about David, a little boy who took on Goliath, the, the champion of the Philistines, and um, he... he just used a little string, and he slayed 
the, the, the giant. Very fascinating stories. And we loved these stories. They went on to the, oh, the other one about Jonah. You know the guy who ended up in the belly of a fish? Yeah, very popular story. So it was all about stories, stories. And I loved it because that was what I knew. I knew stories, and now stories are also being told me in church. And the most popular one is the one we act every year, the nativity story. You know, one little boy that was born in a little village called Bethlehem within the province of Judea um, in a manger. And then three wise men coming around to give him some very interesting gifts. You know that story. So there's always, it's just always a story. Always a story. So I just love stories. However, recently, I have found myself moving away from stories for some reason because I found something that was really, really interesting. And that was the writings of Paul. You see, Paul wrote about 14 books of the Bible in the New Testament. And all this while, I used to avoid it because there were no stories in there. You know, because I grew up with stories, I just want to read stories. So whenever I, I read up to the, the, the Gospels, the Synopic Gospels, I read them. And as soon as I get to Romans, I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to go back to the stories because I love the stories. But recently, I have started appreciating the writings of Paul more than ever. The, the, the ones I love so much is... The, the, the ones to the Ephesians, the letters he wrote to the Ephesians, to the Galatians, and oh, that one to the Philippians that they also call the, the book of rejoicing. You know, where he says something like, rejoice in the Lord always, and I say rejoice, and again I say rejoice. You know, so that was always about rejoicing. So they call it the book of rejoicing, Philippines, Philippians, yeah. But the most interesting one for me was his letter to the church in Rome. Very powerful letter. Very powerful letter to the church in Rome. Now, the reason this was a masterpiece for me, just reading it, is because in that book, he kind of tried to just open up the conversation regarding the difficulty the Gentiles had assessing the gospel. So, so he needed to really touch on this theological divide so that that would set tone that would, create the, that would bring about the understanding that is needed for the other books. So he started by saying things like, salvation is free. So he would say things like, by grace are you saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. Targeting a group, because that group believed that you had to do certain things like circumcision and all of that. But he made it very clear in that book that salvation was a gift. It's not about what you do or what I do. It was a gift a very a free gift that was just given to you by Jesus. If there was anything to be done, he's done it all already. When he died on that cross, he did everything that needed to be done. And he said, okay, now take this and run with it. The life that I'm given, now you have a free life. Not just a free life, you have life abundantly. That's what he says there. 
He talks about the place of the law, the rightful place of the law. Because of all this argument, oh, you have to do this, and then you have to do this, you have to do this, you have to do that. And Paul, in the book of Romans, decided to really talk about this and let everyone know that it's not about what you do. It's not about the law. Because if they don't understand that, it will be difficult for them to understand the other books when he starts writing to the other churches. You can see why the book of Romans is so fascinating. So he talks about it from, you know, just accentuating that idea of this being a gift. Jesus being the second Adam. Abraham being an example of the fact that you don't have to do much. This, this righteousness is imputed unto you because you just believed. So he would say things like, Abraham believed and it was counted upon him as righteousness. That's all he's trying to to explain here. And he labored in this book to explain this. And then he got to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, he lays bare the contradiction that he deals with in his own personal life. He discovered that whenever he tries to do something right, he finds himself doing something very wrong, the opposite of what he wanted. I don't know if anyone else feels that way, but that's what he discovered, and it's true. He labored. I want to do right. I want to keep this, 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 whatever it is that he wants to do. But he finds himself doing something the opposite. And then he discovered that there were two things warring in him. Warring in him. So he lamented, oh, wretched man I am. Who can deliver me from this situation? And then he ended by saying, but, but thanks be to God through Christ, through Jesus Christ and what he has done. Meaning, it is only through the power of what Jesus has done that he can be delivered from this contradiction. Oh, this, this now sets the tone for what is coming. This now sets the tone for what is coming. I'm so excited about it because that is, even some theologians have said the same thing, that this is one of the greatest chapters of the Bible. Chapter 8 of Romans. I love this chapter. If you haven't read it before, just when you're relaxing, you can listen to it or whatever you can do, just read it. It's very, very interesting. This is a chapter that began with a declaration. And the declaration is that there is now, therefore, no condemnation. And it ends with another declaration. There is now no separation. And in between of these two declarations, He's laboring to let you know who you are in Christ, how powerful you are in Christ. It is done. It is sealed. It is delivered. You have nothing to worry about again because there is no more condemnation and there is no separation. That's why he labored to talk about in this chapter. And that's why it's so fascinating. Read it. Because he even talked about the struggles we go through. He said, listen, what you are going through now, you need to count it as joy. Because it's nothing compared to the glory that's ahead of you. And then he says things like, you have been chosen and you are now a co-heir of the kingdom with Christ. So Christ is the heir of the kingdom and you are a co-heir with Christ. 
the kingdom. Very interesting book. Very interesting book. And then I could go on and on and on. You can see the excitement in me when I read this book. I could go on and on and on. And I encourage you to read it. But tonight, I just want us to look down to chapter 32. We're going to start from actually chapter 31. So he says things like, So he's talked about all of this. In 30, he now says, Whom he foreknew, he predestinates to be conformed to the image of his son. And whom he predestinates, he also calls. He whom he calls, he justifies. He whom he justifies, he glorifies eventually. Now, I wish I had time to break them down one by one, and you'll see how powerful that is. But at the end of it, it says, in chapter 1, in chapter 31, we're going to start now to consider five rhetorical questions that he asked to conclude this chapter. In conclusion, five rhetorical questions. So one of them starts in 31. He says, to all of these things, what shall we say? So he's talked about how when we cannot be, um, how there is no more condemnation. He's talked about how living through the spirit, we're no longer held bound by the power of the law, which is, which is really damaging to us, to think of it, of it that way. He's talked about how we are now co-held with Jesus Christ and how we are now um, free from the shackles of, of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit and how we're looking forward to a great, a great life out there. And then he says, what can we then say to all these things? That's the first question. If God be for us, you can finish it for me. If God be for us, who can be against us? That's the first question. Who can be against us? Now, this is the question most people in the world ask. Because the problem here is, do we really believe that God is for us? Hmm. Come to think of it, do I really believe that God is for me? Because maybe if I, if I really, really believe that, it will change the dynamics of how I, I, I do certain things. Now, I was speaking to a friend of mine the other day. He, he's, he happens to be an atheist. He, he doesn't believe in God. He thinks that um, um, we just, you know, wasting our time <laughs> because he's a scientist and he thinks everything has to be out of evidence. And I am a scientist as well. I'm telling him, you're wrong. So, <laughs> so, so it was difficult for us to, to actually have a truth. But he says he doesn't believe in God. And his issue was that how can there be a loving God, as we say, and all this evil is happening on earth? How, how can we even, how can you say that God is loving? We have this God that you talk about, and people are killing each other, children are being molested, and things like this are happening, and he's not doing anything about it. And so he ended by saying, well, you can believe that, Maybe he could be for you, but he's not for me. And I thought about it. And I said, this is exactly 
what the world is thinking. I mean, if you go out there and talk to young people in South London, young people I speak to, this is what they think. That could be your God, not my God, because I don't believe in this God who is not for me. But later on when we started talking about his life, a few things that happened, it was difficult for him to convince me that God is not for him because things happened to him that he did not, did not expect will happen to him. Good things. So I told him, here we go. So God is for you. Now, all I'm saying is this. If we can believe, regardless of all that is happening, that God has a plan and he is for us, it may not make sense sometimes. It may not make logical sense. But if that is what we believe, then it is settled. Because Paul is saying that if God be for us, what can actually be against us? Who can be against us? Nothing. Nothing can be against us. And, and oh, the translation if might seem to be maybe, yeah, so when people say if, if introducing, introducing a, a contradiction, yeah, so it could be, yeah, maybe this way or maybe not, yeah, when you hear the word if. But that's not what Paul is talking about here. If here can be read as, now that we know that God is for us. Yeah? Now that we know or we understand that God is for us. Because it's certain, it's certain that God is for us. There is no truth more fundamental in all God's word than this truth, that God is for us. Perhaps we don't believe this because we are accustomed to failure of people disappointing us. So we don't really believe that he is for us. But truly, he is for us, London Life. He is for us. I'm here to tell you today that God is for you, regardless. He's working things out. I don't know what it is that you're walking through, but he's working things out for you. Now, consistent with this, the Bible declares in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 7, so no weapon fashioned against you shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against you will be condemned. And in Luke chapter 10, verse 11, it says, you have been given authority to trample upon snakes and scorpions and to overcome the power of the enemy. And nothing, no thing shall by any means hurt you. You don't look like you believe it. God is for you. Nothing can be against you. Thousands will fall by the right and 10,000 by the left, according to the psalmist. It will not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you see the destruction of the wicked. God is for you. Nothing, no one can be against you. I want you to hold that strongly. Nothing can be against you. It may not seem like it at the moment, but he's working things out. Nothing can be against you. Let's, let's go to question two. This is the one that I'm really, really interested in. Question number two. Question number two is in verse 32. We're looking at Romans chapter 8, verse 32 now. It says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also 
along with him, graciously give us all things. Now, this is the question of provision. The question is, will God hold back anything from you? He's given us his best in Jesus. What is it that is difficult and that he cannot give to us? What? What is it? Why are you so worried about something that will he give me or he will not give He has already given you the best. So what is so difficult that he can't give you? That's what Paul is asking here. I love Mercedes. I know when I say this, people think it's because of the glamour that it you know, announces. No, no, no. It's not the opulence that it announces or the, the, uh, the, the success, if you like, that Mercedes class, class C, class E, whatever it is, announces. <laughs> no, that's, that's not why I love Mercedes. I love Mercedes because, um, see, my academic background was um, in mechanical and manufacturing engineering. That was how I got my first degree. And while doing that, I had a course that was called um, auto mechanics, auto mechanics. And in that course, we, we studied how to design and, and, and develop new cars and things like that. So, and this was about, well, I don't want to reveal my age, but this was about 30 years ago. So <laughs> you can imagine that um, it was a bit different, different from the world today in terms of the model of cars you, you had. So Mercedes, pioneered a lot of things that you see in the cars today. I'll give you two examples. One of them is the ABS. We all know it, the automatic braking system. Um, before now, when you brake um, suddenly, there was a risk of overturn. So the cars were somersault, yeah, because um, the front tires are bound to lock. And when they lock and the back tires are still working, they just, the force pushes up, and then it somersaults. So Mercedes came up with this thing called ABS in such a way that it doesn't, the tires don't lock that abruptly and it's, it affects the four tires at once and that's how you're no longer able to somersault, yeah? And then they also had this, we had these old carburetors, some of you still remember, we had carburetor engines, but they came up with this idea of um, injection nozzle where the ratio of the fuel and oxygen, air, is, is well measured in such a way that um, it, it, it will not waste fuel that much. That's how we now started having efficiency in, in that sense, because it's no longer the carburetor, the old carburetor with the plugs. It's now an injection nozzle that has that ratio right. And in terms of aerodynamics, if you open the windows of Mercedes then, the way the circulation of the air in there was different from other cars as it were. You know, I could go on and on and on. And when you talk about the, 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 the door, you know, so in your fridge today, when you close the fridge, it seems as though there are magnets that just like hold this up and it sounds, that kind of thing. That was, the, they, they were the first to bring that technology into the cars. So they had these dampers such that when you close, there's an airtight, um, I, I'm, I'm struggling to, seal, airtight seals that when they come together, they just lock up like magnets that way. So Mercedes pioneered this in those days. So there were quite a lot of things, you know, that was just mechanically efficient about Mercedes. So I love Mercedes so much, even though I haven't driven yet. Yeah. 
I don't want to change my mind about it. So I haven't driven it. <laughs> but I love Mercedes. Now imagine that I'm so passionate about Mercedes here and I'm talking about it and someone has Mercedes here, hypothetically speaking. Someone had very nice new Mercedes here he or she just bought, you know, with all their savings. And they're like, this guy likes Mercedes a lot. Maybe I'm just going to give it to him. Then they walk up to me and say, here is a key to a new car I just bought. I actually, that's my life saving here now, but I can give it to you. Don't worry, I can give it to you. I'm saying, really? And I'm so excited. I take it, and then they take the Uber home. Yeah? They take the Uber home, or they take the bus home. Now I have their Mercedes. And I'm so excited. I drive it home, only to realize that the foot mat was missing. So I have the car now, but just the foot mat is not there. And then I became depressed. Oh, what am I going to do? Ah, maybe I'm going to go back to the owner to see if he will give me the foot mat or he will not. Oh, and I'm so worried about it. Yeah, and I couldn't sleep that night. I was just thinking about this foot mat, you know. But I have the car. How, how, how amazing is that? Yeah, this is the attitude that we go with. God emptied heaven of the best. The Bible says he gave us his only begotten son to die the death of a, of a thief for you, for me. He did that. And then the next day, we kind of are worried about our job or worried about the food. And then we're crying, we're depressed. Oh, I don't know if I go to God, if he will give me this or not. But he gave you the best. What is it that he cannot give to you? What on earth can he not give to you? This is what Paul is asking here, that if he can give you everything, give you the best of heaven, what is it that he cannot give to you? So when you're praying, do me a favor. When you're praying next time, just pray knowing that there is nothing that he cannot give to you. Everything good he will give to you. Go with that confidence. Go with that faith. And he says, even just so small as that of a mustard seed, he can do great things with that. That's what he's asking you of. That's the second question. I think I'm spending so much time on that now. Let's go to the third question. The third question is, verse 33. That's where we are now. So we're done with verse 32. Let's do verse 33. It says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. This is about protection. You see, what if someone is, is going to accuse you of something? Can it stick? That's the question. If you are accused of something, can it actually stick? Right. You know, in the Bible, in Zechariah chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, we, we read of a story where Satan actually accused
So I'm going to read that story here. So I'm going to read verse 2 to, five, to, to 3. So verse 2 says, this was the answer, the answer of the angel said, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sins and I will put rich garments on you. Now, this shows clearly that the devil can accuse us. He can accuse us. And frankly, he might be right. He might look at us and say, you don't know this young man. You don't know what he did yesterday. He doesn't deserve anything good from you. You don't know where he's been yesterday. In fact, just as you, they were singing here, he was thinking about something who doesn't, that doesn't honor you. And he might be right. Guess what? He might be right. But the Bible is saying here that the angel of the Lord is puking him. Because Jesus is saying, listen, I do know that this person has done this and has done that, but do you know what I've done? I have snatched this person from fire. You don't know what he or she has gone through, but I have snatched them from fire. So they are mine. And it takes up all that for you and gives you a new robe, which is what we talk about when we say imputed righteousness. It's nothing to do with you. It's about the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He puts that new robe in you and declares you righteous. He declares you righteous for nothing. So devil's accusation cannot stick. Why? According to the text. Because it is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. And justification simply means that he overrules. The judge is there and saying, listen, I've heard the argument, but I overrule. You are justified. So he can accuse you and, and get it to stick. Verse 34. The next question. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. Now, this is about justification. Sorry, condemnation. Now, in this world, people condemn us a lot. They judge us and they condemn us. Um, I, I have a lot of experience about this. You know, you walk into somewhere, you sometimes all you need to do is just walk into somewhere. You haven't even said anything. And they have a clear idea of what they think you are or who they think you are. And when you open your mouth to say something, oh, they've tagged you to something. You must be this, you must be that. Only because of who you are, just doing nothing yet. So now you have to work very hard to convince them that I'm not who you think I am. Maybe it's just me, but this happens. This happens to a lot of people in workplaces, everywhere. Because people are just 
wired that way that they're just full of prejudice. They look at you, they, they, they attach you to something, to an experience they had or some news they had on television or radio and they make up their mind about you before they even hear from you. So people judge you. And the worst case of judgment is you do something wrong and they give you a tag. That woman that does this. That man that did this. And that never erases in their mind. So no matter what you do, you remain that person that did that. It's just judged. They've judged you. Sometimes it's also because of your weakness. It could just be that you aren't able to do a thing like this. I remember one, a job that I got into, and um, you know, I, it was just difficult for me to understand the system they were using. And it took a while for me to get through. But even when I now got a system and I was even training people in it, some people still thought that I could never do this. Because they've already had that idea from the first day that he can't do this. So everyone judges you. And sometimes, frankly, you judge yourself. Your conscience. You do something and you're judging yourself. You're like, God is not going to forgive me in this. No one is going to look at me anymore. Everyone is going to do that. You judge yourself because of what you've done. But Paul is saying here that no one can condemn you. The only one who has the power to condemn you is Jesus. But guess what? He hasn't condemned you. And he said he would never, ever condemn you. Instead, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. Hallelujah! When I, I get excited, because all this judgment that's going on is now nothing to me because I know it's someone who will never, ever judge me. Right, that takes us to the last one, which is a real one. The last one is verse 35 to 37. Verse 35 to 37. Who can separate us from the love of God? Who can separate us from the love of God? The answer is no one. No one can do that. Why? Because it is secure in Jesus and what Jesus has done, which is irreversible. You didn't hear me. You didn't hear me, London Life. What Jesus has done is irreversible. So if, yours, if your connection is through that glue, nothing can move it because it's set and can never be reversed. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's why the hymn writer says, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll. It is fastened to the rock that cannot be moved. It's grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Nothing can separate you. Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Christ Jesus. For in all these things, ha! In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Now, I, I wish I had the time to tell you what it means to be more than a conqueror. But, but, but can I just say this? He didn't say, after all these things. No, he says, in all these things. What that means is, despite all these things going on, famine, all this death, all these negative things going on, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. So it's not about what you're dealing with. Now, I know the doctors might give you a very bad re report. They might even tell you, oh, no, we, we, don't, we can't do anything about this. But it doesn't change anything because you cannot be separated from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. The money might run low. You're looking at your bank account and you're wondering, how am I going to pay the bills? How am I going to afford this? How am I going to manage the children? For you are more than conqueror because it's not hinged in all of this. In the midst of these things, you are more than conquerors. That means that it's not about you. It's about what someone has already done. It is sealed and delivered, like I said in the beginning. Nothing to do with you. It's done. So London Life, all I've come to tell you today is that you need to be a bit more confident about what God has done for you. You need to be a bit more confident. When you pray, be confident that he's answering even when it doesn't seem like he's answering, he's answering because if he has given you, if he can give you all that heaven has, there is nothing else that he cannot give to you. And remember, remember that all of these things is hinged in the blood of Jesus, the blood that he shed in the cross of Calvary, and it cannot be changed. It is sealed. It cannot be changed. It is irreversible. So nothing can separate you from this love. Nothing. That's all I've come to tell you. So let's celebrate. Let's celebrate. Because right now, we know, we know that it doesn't matter what the devil does. He can go ahead and accuse us of anything. He might be right because, you know, we do what we do sometimes. He might be right, but it cannot stick because it can't change anything. So celebrate celebrate. You don't look like you're celebrating yet. Celebrate. Celebrate. Because we are more than conquerors through Christ our Lord. Amen. This is the end of this broadcast. We hope you have been encouraged and inspired. For more information, please visit londonlivechurch.com. Mm -hmm.